Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. We at Veritas are working hard to bring uplifting conversation and faithful Catholic teaching to everyone who can hear us. We're listener supported and you can help us by going to www.veritascatholic.com. And we just celebrated the 244th birthday of the United States. And appropriately, we're right smack in between the feast days of St. Junipero Serra, that was July 1st, and St. Kateri Tekakwitha, that's on July 14th. So today, Bishop Frank thought it'd be cool to take a quick look back at some of the history of the church in America as seen through the eyes of some of our American saints. Before we get to that, thank you to our weekly sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum. Please visit the museum online at kofcmuseum.org for lots of free, enjoyable, and educational content for you and your family. Again, it's kofcmuseum.org. Hey all, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Frank Caggiano. I am Steve Lee, and I'm so happy, as always, to introduce His Excellency, Bishop Frank Caggiano. Great to be with you, Steve, as always. And I'm excited about what we're going to be talking about today, which is American Catholic history, no? Yes, that's right. So for this week's episode, you and I, we, we plan to talk to, uh, to take a walk through some of the history of the church in America as seen through uh, the eyes of some of our saints. And um, as we were speaking before we started, it's important to, to put into context the way the church, the way society has uh, evolved throughout these past several hundred years here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, many of us um, in the memory that we have of the church probably had, we could characterize it as a very different experience than those who came before us. Right? And I think for us to talk about these remarkable women and men who are towering figures of holiness, who struggle with the questions of their own age, we need to remember a bit of the larger picture that defined the journey of Catholics um, from the birth, even prior to the birth of the country, all throughout those many decades. You know, and I, growing up in an immigrant family, understood one of the major ones, and that is we are a church of immigrants. And because we are a church of immigrants, the immigrant experience very much affected the psyche and the structure of the church. A a perfect example, we're going to talk about uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, and she was so profoundly dedicated to education. And the Catholic school system, of which in many ways she is the foundress, the Catholic school system arose because Catholics in many parts of the country, were not welcomed in public schools. Right. Public schools were, in fact, religious schools because the predominant religion was Protestant Christianity of many forms. You know, the Know Nothing Party of New York basically told Catholics to go take a hike in the public. So the church reacted by mandating the creation of those schools simply because the immigrants coming in such large numbers would have been completely condemned in poverty, or chances are would have to have gone home. Yeah. And, and the Catholic Church in the United States helped, built, helped really help build the United States. So we're immigrant. And therefore, that opposition to Catholicism is not new. 
I mean, we live in a world now that secular society opposes a lot of work, but but we've been facing opposition from St. Peter and Paul (laughs) and the early martyrs of Rome. But even in this country, there was lots of discrimination. Yes. And and quite frankly, a lot of misinformation about Catholicism, which still goes on today, even in, in, in our you know, fairly well-educated society. It's amazing what people don't know about the church or they think what we believe in the church. But anyway, so there was opposition. And the other thing that I think we have to keep really in mind when we look at people like Junipero Serra and others is that um, the missionary impulse that accompanied some of the colonialism that occurred in the very early ages, right, in the times even before the founding of the country, uh, came out of an impulse, a deep desire on the part of men and women to bring the faith uh, in Christ to every human being because they held very strongly, as we do now, that the church is the sacrament of the offer of salvation in the world and that you can need to come to know the Savior. Now, historically, some of what happened Certainly, we would not do now, nor would we condone now. But knowing what they knew in that time, as best they understood it, I think in many, at least the cases of the people we're going to talk about, they tried valiantly right, to both strive for holiness and also in their zeal, try to preach and teach and convert people to the faith because of that impulse their desire to have everyone know Jesus Christ and everyone go to heaven. So we were missionary for a very long time. Then we became established. And you think of figures like Cardinal Cushing or Cardinal Spellman, right, in the 50s. The church was established. Yes. And now, Steve, we're going back to missionary status. That's right. In a different world. And we're going to do it in very different ways. And we've learned from the excesses of the past and the mistakes of the past and even the sins of the past. But how do we now evangelize as the United States becomes missionary again for all people of faith, not just Catholics? Yeah. So history is cyclical too in some ways. Yeah. So it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating, fascinating um overview to see the rich, varied, and somewhat, you know, complex history of American Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that history, it begins at the very beginning, uh, at least of, you know, Europeans coming here. So it starts as early as the 1600s. You had uh, Isaac Jogues and the French Jesuits in the Northeast, Franciscan Mm -hmm. missionaries in in Florida Mm -hmm. and other areas of the country. Let's Mm -hmm. Let's begin uh, in the Northeast with Isaac Jogues in the 1600s. And specifically, uh, let's take a look at um, a remarkable young woman there named Kateri Tekakwitha. Mm-hmm. The Lily of the Mohawks. Um, Kateri, uh, she was a Native American. She was in the Mohawk tribe. She lived only 24 years, right? I believe she was born in the mid-1650s yes. and died just about the beginning of 1680. Mm-hmm. And she survived 
a smallpox epidemic that killed, I believe, both her parents and one of her siblings and scarred her to the point where she was very self-conscious of her appearance and all of the marks that remained on her face. She converted to Catholicism only about five years before she died, having been exposed to it because, as you indicate, of the French missionary, right, many of them Jesuits, who came right, to preach the gospel. And, you know, as I read, even to prepare for our podcast, and just that which I remember studying, right, even in, in, in seminary, um, to get an appreciation of Kateri, you have to have an appreciation of tribal life. Right? Which again, many of the missionaries of the time, probably in many different ways, did not understand completely, nor did they understand and appreciate the value that was inherent in all of those. Right? Right. Okay. The truth is, in that age, in that time, in that culture, in that tribal setting, you know, a young woman by 13 or 14 would have been married. Yes. Okay because the lifespan was so, was so brief. So when Kateri indicated um, a desire not to marry, that would have provoked a tremendous amount of backlash from family and the extended family in the longhouse, in the clan, right? In the tribe itself. But she was remarkably determined to live what she believed. And she felt this call to the point where she was baptized later on in life to espouse herself to Christ, whom she discovered through the priests that were there, present in their midst. And she, she, in one of her writings, she basically spoke of giving herself to this, my spouse. So she's called the lily because of the purity, right? She, she lived, she gave herself to a life of virginity until her death. The other thing I thought was very interesting about Kateri's life is that um, she very much embraced penitential suffering yes. for others. And some of the practices that she lived with and that she did, I mean, I myself, quite frankly, I mean, I'm not sure I could ever do. I mean, literally, it was self-mortification. It was... It, among the Iroquois and among some of the Mohawk, you know, this whole question of, of literally letting out blood in remembrance, okay, in remembrance particularly of the dead, in an offering that was usually done every 10 years, was not uncommon. But for her, in all of these extreme acts of penance, it was for the remission of sins. It was for the, for the prayer of those around her. Again, for the, those with whom she shared a life, this probably was very odd, but she remained committed to it. Yeah. So she died at 24 years of age. And it's reported that upon her death, not soon after she did in fact die, there was a remarkable, some even would say a miraculous healing of her body, so that the scars that she carried, the smallpox, smallpox uh, scars that she carried, healed. And she had a radiant beauty about her. Yeah. 
Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Saints are not perfect. And we have this almost romantic view that uh, saints never made mistakes, never committed sins, at times even grave sins. Oh my goodness, look at St. Augustine in his life. Mm -hmm. he, created, he, he committed lots of grave sin before his conversion. Yeah. But, but they strove for holiness with the best light that they had in the context in which they lived. So we will see in Junipero Serra, for example, they accompanied those who were the soldiers, right? The Spanish garrison, all the rest. They, they committed tremendous atrocities. Yes. So his care for the Native Americans in California was far more compassionate. But did he make mistakes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Which, please God, we would not do. But that doesn't mean he's not a saint, and that does not mean in the sense that, that he did not strive for holiness, as Kateri did. So I think um, I've always, when I was a little boy, I was always fascinated with Indians of, of New York State. My seventh grade project was to create a longhouse out of sticks. Uh -huh. You know those ice cream sticks? Yes, the little popsicle sticks. The popsicle sticks. And, and, and what I found fascinating about it, not only because I could do it, I mean, it was like, kind of like in seventh grade, you were, wow, I did this kind of thing. <laughs> I kept it for years. <laughs> because I was fascinated with the life that would have been lived in that longhouse. Yeah. How yeah. family was more than just mother and father. The extended family was family. Mm -hmm. And how the tribe, when it gathered, really supported themselves almost literally as a one single family unit. Yeah. So all the more courageous for Kateri, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, to buck the religious beliefs of what would have been so much a part of fabric of her life. Yeah. Like, she didn't have the option to be mediocre. <laughs> You're either in or out. And she yep. was in with both feet. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's jump forward a little bit then. Uh, you already brought him up. So we're going into the 1770s and we'll go across the country from New York and take a look at a man who I believe has been uh, quite misunderstood in many ways, especially recently, and in some cases maligned. And I'm talking about Father Sarah and the, the great work that he did in California. Right, right. I think, I mean, in the modern criticisms against many of those who lived before us, I think it is, um, it is easy to fall into the trap of becoming ahistorical. That yes. means that that which existed at the time um, is not seen in its own context but seen against a modern standard or that which we understand and know. There will be generations after us who will have perhaps a more sophisticated or more mature or, or a different perspective who will do the same thing to us as we are doing to those who came before us. Yeah. I think everyone, Mama used to say, you plant a flower in the garden and without the garden, the flower is lost. And in some way, shape or form, when we look at a person like Junipero Serra, we need to really contextualize everything he's doing. And not, as I said, not excuse the mistakes that may have been made, but to understand what the motivation was. And in his own personal life, in a lot of the sacrifice of his life, in trying to be 
and many times a buffer to try to mitigate some of the brutality that the, 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 um, the military officials were free to administer. Many times, uh, Father Sarah and his companions blocked most of that. Yes, that's right. Right, but his great desire as a missionary, for when he was a little boy, mm -hmm. okay, his, his desire was to be a missionary, was to bring the gospel. And if I remember correctly, he wanted, right, to go into the East as well. But the truth of the matter is, he was raised as a, a devout, in a devout Catholic family. He became a Franciscan. He um, went to Baja, California, and eventually helped found nine of the 21 Spanish missions in California, starting with San Diego, and I think he went all the way to San Francisco, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Right? Yeah. Right? And he was recently canonized. I think it was when Pope Francis came to the United States in his, in his apostolic, the only apostolic journey he's had to the United States, that it was at the Basilica in Washington where he canonized yeah. Sarah. He was a brilliant man. From what I remember, he was truly an intellectual. He was a philosopher. He taught. And he was considered intellectually brilliant by his peers and by those around him. So he could have had a life of teaching in a university. Right. Right. But he chose not to do that. And he chose to come to the United States. Yeah. And there's a famous story of when he arrived, and of course his great patron was Francis of Assisi. And Francis said in his rule that the friars, right, should not have money and should not ride a donkey anywhere unless it was absolutely mandatory because of their impaired health. He walked from where he landed all the way to what is now Mexico City. Yes. That's hundreds of miles. Yeah. And he, and correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but did he not in that period of time contract a malady in his leg? Yes, that's right. Right? Some sort of infection that inflamed his leg, caused him to itch all over his body. It was almost reminiscent of the thorn of the flesh that St. Paul speaks about in his life. Yeah. But he still continued to walk. He still continued to go through the missions, still continued to preach. Right? And so I think for Father Sarah, um, one of the events in his life was he became the inquisitor of the region. And again, in those days, that task was to ensure that the faith was kept pure from all, mis like from all heresy and all mistakes. Now, in our modern age, we would do that differently. But it was motivated from, from, that, from the desire of his heart to make sure that people have a clear path to get to heaven. Because in the end, it is all about being with the Lord Jesus forever. So he also was no stranger to penances, right? Mm -hmm. There was the famous episode in his life where he took a stone and beat himself in the chest and he gave himself palpitations. They actually thought that he had given himself a heart attack. Right? So it's, it's kind of a similar thread, right? Yes. The missionaries went out, they were alongside the colonialists and the, and the military forces. 
many times they tried to, as best they could, to mitigate the cruelty and torture that would have happened at the hands of those individuals. Some of what they did in their attempt to preach the gospel, in hindsight we look back and say certainly in the modern age we would not do that, but it was all motivated out of this deep burning desire to bring everyone to faith so that everyone could have eternal joy and glory in the kingdom of heaven. Yes. And he lived a very penitential life himself on behalf of all the people that he tried to serve. Right. Is that a yeah. fair way of describing it? I think Anything so. Anything that strikes you? You know, I just, um, I think as you mentioned, Excellency, it's important not to confuse the actions of the military with the actions of the missionaries. Uh, Father Sarah strongly took issue with, with, what the, with what the military was doing. And it's clear from Father Sarah's own writings that his motivation was a missionary zeal to bring salvation, as you said, to the native people of California. So, right, right, right. And so we have this young nation. It's continuing to grow. Uh, in the colonies then, around this time, uh, Thomas Jefferson then writes the Declaration of Independence, which is also signed by a very wealthy and prominent Catholic named Charles Carroll in Maryland. Uh, in 1789, Charles Carroll's brother, John Carroll, becomes the first American bishop in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and in these days, when the scourge of slavery still existed here in America, mm -hmm. we had a great man in New York named Pierre Toussaint. And tell us about him, Excellency. Now, what a fascinating, fascinating man, All right? So he came to the United States because he was bought as a slave and arrived in 1787 in my former home, hometown right, of New York. And he eventually won his freedom and took the name Toussaint because he named he wanted to take the name of the hero of the Haitian Revolution. He himself was Haitian. And um, to imagine once being a slave and with every reason on earth to certainly grow to resent those who held you in bondage or in slavery or as a possession, his response was totally different. Yes. His response was to open his heart and the wife that he married as a layman in charity and in an attempt to help others who were poor. In other words, the fact that he suffered, even though in many ways he found a niche which allowed him to be fairly well off, he became a hairdresser to the affluent of New York. And you know how people are. Once you have a barber you like, you stick with the barber. And, and, and he, he had both the demeanor and the talent to do extraordinary work in that regard. And I must tell you, I mean, in the pandemic that we're living in, how often do we, do we take for granted, we've talked about this, like your, your hairdresser, your barber. Yeah. It's almost as if, you know, but... It is as noble a work as any other work. Yeah. Right? And he did extraordinarily well. So his temperament, his gentility, and, and his charitable heart was just extraordinary. And so much so, I, I still think he is the only layperson 
who is buried in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Yeah, isn't that amazing? He's down there right. with all those cardinals. Right. He actually helped to raise money for the first St. Patrick's, wow. which is downtown, right? Which was replaced by the new, what we call now St. Patrick's, the new St. Patrick's, which was built literally in the wilderness of Manhattan at the time. <laughs> so, so what's the takeaway for, from, from Pierre Toussaint? Okay, he was freed at the age of 45. He lived to his mid 80s. Yeah. He was able in his freedom, having married his wife, Juliet, who was 20 years younger than he, Toussaint lived a faithful Catholic life. He went to mass every day, every day for yes. 66 years, every single day. He was faithful to his, his vocation and he did it with dignity and respect and honor. And he, in his charity, created a credit bureau and an employment agency and gave out charity to refuge for priests and those who were destitute and young children who were looking for education. He was one of the benefactors of the first New York City Catholic school for black children, which was unheard of in the public school system. So a remarkable man, yeah. a remarkable man of faith. Yeah. And I am praying that please God, there will be miracles that will be confirmed on his behalf in his, for his intercession, so one day he will be counted among the saints of this country. Yeah, so if you're out there and listening and you need a miracle, there's a good one right there. Without a doubt. Yep. He's, yeah, he's just uh, amazing because like you said, Excellency, he had every reason to be bitter and angry, but um, he even, he cared for uh, the, the widow of the man who owned him as a slave after he died. He cared for her. He cared for so many people. It's just, it's amazing what the sacraments can do, right? Going to mass every day for 60 years. Absolutely, it can heal. It can heal even the deepest wounds mm -hmm. and the deepest betrayals. And, you know, again, to give a historical perspective, if someone were the master of a slave, mm -hmm. that does not always, not, was not always adversarial. And many, many times, all right, yes. those individuals would, became part of the family. But nonetheless, the very structure is gravely evil. Right. Gravely evil. Yes. Yes. And easily can lead to resentment or bitterness. And in Pierre Toussaint's case, that was not the case. Right. That's a sign of authentic holiness. Yeah. On that note, let's take a quick break, Excellency, and come back and we'll, we'll continue the, the conversation on the other side. Catholic Radio works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Everybody, we're back with uh, Bishop Frank Caggiano on Let Me Be Frank. We're talking about the history of the church in America as seen through the eyes of American saints and uh, we've come up to the early 1800s, and we're going to turn our attention away from New York, away from California, to 
Maryland um, to a woman named Elizabeth Ann Seton who converted to Catholicism and then began doing really important work there out of Emmitsburg. And Excellency? Yeah, I, I see. Elizabeth Ann Seton um, is... She established the first Catholic girls' school in the nation in Emmitsburg. She is the founder of the Sisters of Charity. She would be the first person born in the United States to be canonized by the church in 1975. Okay. Um, I think Mother Cabrini was canonized before, but Mother Cabrini was an immigrant to the United States. So she is the first native-born American saint. And she's a convert, right? From the Episcopal Church into the Catholic Church. Her life, as we, as we chatted before we started the podcast, there were lots of ins and outs to Elizabeth Ann Seton's life that uh, sometimes, to keep them straight in my head, there were a lot of people coming and going. Because again, right. she was involved in, she was part of a fairly affluent family, all right, in New York City originally, then came down to Emmitsburg when she, she, she gathered the sisters together, the, the, those girls that wanted to form the original um, uh, Sisters of Charity. But there's one piece of her life that I find absolutely revelatory. Her natural mother died when she was three. And her stepmother, who took her into a home when her father remarried, um, that marriage, her father with her stepmother, also ended in separation and her stepmother rejected Elizabeth and her older sister. So when you're three, you are old enough to remember really what happened. So this young woman, by the time she was in her late teens, had lost two mothers. Now consider for a moment, again, echoing with Pierre Toussaint, how that could have led someone to deep anger or bitterness. And she herself in her writing speaks of a time of darkness and grieving, but it didn't lead her to turn in on herself. What she did was she opened up her heart and went out of herself. Yes. And that's a major dynamic, spiritual dynamic that should exist in every person's life. The saints teach us that suffering is an invitation to holiness or bitterness. To go out of oneself in surrender to God and his, in many times, inscrutable love, or to close in on ourselves because we think we deserve something different and want to find the answer within ourselves and by our own means and the things we can do. And that second path is extremely dangerous spiritually. Yeah. But she did not do that. Yeah. So she knew, she knew uh, wealth, and she also knew financial struggle because I think her husband declared bankruptcy, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, yeah, he did. So yeah. she knew both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. And then he got, uh, he got sick as well, and they went to Italy uh, for him to recover which is where she uh, rediscovered or discovered uh, the Catholic faith. Right. Um, and, then, right. and then he died and she started all this work. So 
I wanted to ask you, Excellency, about, so you mentioned the heartache that she saw in her life. I wanted to ask you about, she grew up in wealth. She married a wealthy man and um, she- And very devout yes. in the Episcopal Church. Right, mm -hmm. yes. And then, but she took everything she had and she gave it to the church and to Christ. And so mm -hmm. this, this relationship, sometimes people think that there's a, an adversarial relationship between wealth and faith, but... Wealth is a blessing when used properly. It is a curse when it becomes an end in itself. There is not a thing we have or can do or can think that's not a gift. You know, those who have been blessed with material wealth, and many of us have, mm -hmm. by earthly standards, even in the contemporary world, right? The vast majority of us live very comfortable lives compared to others who struggle very, very profoundly. But, and therefore, there is sometimes this romanticism says, I have to physically give it all away in order to seek holiness. And that is not the case. What is the case is your possessions cannot possess you. If your possessions possess you, you're an idolater. Hmm. You have taken the place God should have in your life and put something, it's like the Ebenezer Scrooge. It's funny you should say that. A few nights ago, I stumbled on the Disney cartoon of A Christmas Carol, which by the way, was very well done in July, I know, but what can I say? And, and that's the classic example of possessions possessing you. Yeah. because of, of what he experienced in that fictitious narrative of the grief and the loss in his own upbringing and the rejection at the hands of his fiancée because he chose to make his possessions his mm -hmm. idol. So, yeah, uh, no, that, that, that is a tremendous mistake to think that. Now, having said all that, those who accumulate a, tr a great amount of money need to be wary, wary on the means by which they do that. Okay, because many times it's done at the expense of others who are your colleagues, collaborators, or who work for you. And that I believe, and the church would teach, would be a grave sin if you violate the dignity of others, including the dignity of right work and right wage in order to amass wealth, which you would then give away. Well, no, no, right? That, that it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So uh, uh, it's funny you say that it's St. Elizabeth Ann Seton went to Emmitsburg, Maryland, which she did, and she established St. Joseph's Academy, right? St. Joseph's Academy and Free School for Catholic Girls, that's what it is named. And Mount St. Mary's really has its origin at that time, right? It was, if I believe it was the first seminary created in the United States. Hmm. First Catholic university. I could be wrong, but I'm almost certain that is. And, and therefore, the, it, it was all about caring for children and education and the poor, particularly poor children. And she died at 46 years old. Yeah. So by modern standards, she was still a young woman. For her own standards, perhaps that would have been the, the, the age, you know, the, the, the lifespan of you know, woman, women of that age. But, and yet we look back, and everything that has happened, look at the 
parochial school system, mm -hmm. tens of millions of children educated, formed, became leaders. It's just remarkable what yeah. one life can do. Yeah. Particularly when the life is animated by the power of grace. Yes. And Emmitsburg is definitely worth a trip. Um, we went down there and I wasn't sure. My kids were younger than they are now and I wasn't sure how much they'd like it, but they loved Mount St. Mary's. And, they, and, and uh, there's a shrine for Elizabeth Ann Seton there too, which was really, really... Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. peaceful and beautiful so mm -hmm. so catholics uh had always faced pretty widespread discrimination in america since the very mm -hmm. first days of the pilgrims in the 1600s the discrimination uh as you alluded to earlier in our conversation it picked up uh in an alarming way in the mid 1800s um you know by that time catholics had become the single largest religious denomination in the u.s thanks to massive immigration and high birth mm -hmm. rates and then, Excellency, you mentioned a group called the Know Nothing Society, which sprang up in 1884. And they, with, with their um, arrival, we saw the burning of Catholic churches and convents and the killings That's of right. priests all over, all over right. the U.S. There was this persecution right. of Catholics, especially in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we come to 1884 and Mother Frances Cabrini lands in New York with six of her fellow sister nuns. Tell us about Mother Cabrina, Cabrini. Well, I, I, she is definitely one of the people, if I am found worthy to get to heaven, I want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with this woman yeah. in heaven. I want to get to know this woman because you talk about a steel will. Mm -hmm. You talk about a, a trust in providence. I think she's, she founded over 70 institutions yes and she would stand on the corners in new york city begging for money and she almost always was able to raise the capital to found orphanages and schools and hospitals and it was just absolutely remarkable and she for sure i know went to ask to go east and the pope said no you are to go west yes you are to go to the United States and help your fellow Italian immigrants who are struggling in the United States. Now, let's state for the record that the persecution that Catholics faced was not solely at the hand of those who may have shared Christian faith but were not Catholic, mm -hmm. for lots of reasons. But there was also difficulties within the Catholic community because immigrants in prior generations did not welcome the immigrants of the current generation, which is, I must confess, extraordinarily sad commentary when you consider Catholics not welcoming other Catholics, mm -hmm. yeah. which unfortunately is going on in our own age. <laughs> right. yeah. So one would think in history we would learn our lesson but that's for another podcast to get deeper into that discussion. But going back to Mother Cabrini, you know, she founded the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, really to serve Italian immigrants. And, you know, I remember the first time I went to Mulberry Street, and of course I was with my father, my father was still alive. And I said to her, I said, where are all the Italians? <laughs> I mean, and he said to me, well, this was the portal. 
And we went up and down, because most of them are now gone. I mean, we, they've immigrated to Brooklyn and to New Jersey and basically amalgamated, assimilated. Mm-hmm. But with a little bit of imagination, you could imagine what those tenements look like when they were teeming with families, with five, six, seven children. Yeah. And trying to make a, a, a wage and trying to find their way all right, in a new country without the language. And because they did have trades, they were able to get into the trades, but just extraordinarily difficult. So the church went to the difficulty. See, Cabrini is the patron saint of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And when an immigrant comes to a new country, they need, above all else, to have those who will welcome them and walk with them. I'm not exactly sure most immigrants simply want a handout. Perhaps in the contemporary world, that may be more the case, because we all are drinking the water of self-centeredness or self-gratification. We're all guilty in some way, shape, or form. That's the, the air we breathe in a secular society. But in that age, I'm not sure. But what they did need was initial help and some sort of support and some sort of companionship and some sort of attention to their religious needs. Since the various groups coming from England had, uh, from, from England and Ireland and Germany and Spain and Portugal and, and, and um, and in Italy, we had very different cultural expressions of Catholicism. So even though she had delicate health, and I believe her uncle was a priest who influenced her early in life when she lived in Italy, she wanted to be a missionary, right? So she took Xavier after Francis Xavier. She yeah. wanted to be a missionary. Once again, on fire. Yes. So... I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I could keep going on and on because I'm biased, obviously, here in this question. Uh, I have a great love for, for Mother Cabrini because... Um, let me tell you a quick story. Yes. Okay. When I was a young boy, I had a, a, a dear neighbor who came from a family who, when the family immigrated to the United States in their time of need, went to the Catholic church, to the local church, to ask for help. And they got the door closed on their face. And they found a welcome in a Protestant church and then began worshiping in the Protestant church. Mm -hmm. The great towering figures like Cabrini were the church at its best to make sure that did not happen. Yeah. Right? Particularly among the Italian immigrants, but true for all immigrants. Yeah. So what's the examination of conscience for you and me and our listeners in our own age with all that's going on and all the debate and all how immigrants are being treated? We talked about this in an earlier podcast. I very much believe that the laws of the country should be respected. Otherwise, a nation falls into anarchy and chaos. But I also believe that immigrants who do come to the United States need to be cared for and need to be helped to try to assimilate, but also to be able to have their basic human needs met. Cabrini understood that. 
Yes. You know, and that brings us right to the end of the 19th century. Well, I wanted to ask you, we're, we're talking about all these strong and amazing American Catholic women. Um, have you ever heard of Sister Blandina? No. Okay. Nobody's heard of her that, I, that I've talked to yet. And I love her story. She was born in 1850 in Italy, in Genoa. And when she's four years old, her family immigrates to the United States, to Cincinnati. And when she was 16, she joined the Sisters of Charity. And she, like Mother Cabrini, she wanted to serve as a missionary. So she asked to be sent to the island of Trinidad. And instead, the superiors sent her to the Wild West, to Trinidad, Colorado. <laughs> really? Yeah. But she, get, she goes there and she's uh, obedient and she's also on fire and she's fearless. She travels throughout the Wild West in the days of the cowboys and she establishes schools and orphanages for the poor and for the Hispanics, and she really takes care of the Native Americans out there in the, in the Wild West. And she was fearless, like I said. She even famously went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Billy the Kid on a few occasions. Really? So she's a, she's a cool story. And uh, the um, Santa Fe, I think, is now sponsoring her cause for sainthood. So hopefully um, she'll gain in popularity as well. Uh, I wanted to go, Excellency, and um, I wanted to look at uh, um, a couple quick things. Um, first, we have about, uh, we have a little time left. Uh, the publication of the Baltimore Catechism in 1884, can you just tell us, you know, in a, in a couple minutes, why that was significant? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start from the beginning. Okay. The very fact that the bishops in 1829 asked for the catechism, and it took a good 50, 60 years to do, gives me consolation. It does, <laughs> because much of what we want to get done now takes awfully long time. And I said to myself, is it me? But it's probably part of the very fabric of the history of the church. But um, the catechism reflects a pedagogy, which in our own very contemporary age, is having a resurgence. Um, and that is that there is a basic, fundamental need to answer questions. Questions about faith. Questions that have allow a substantial, logical, reasoned, and one would say almost an apologetic answer so that a person could understand and therefore live and therefore defend their faith. We've come through a period where people have not learned their faith well, and it's therefore they're leaving a church that they don't understand, rejecting a God that nobody believes in, and they're rejecting doctrine that were never really taught to them. So the fundamental insight, I think, of the bishops in Baltimore was that if you don't have that tool, then you are leaving people uh, to find the answers on their own if they find them at all. Right. So the Baltimore Catechism has really been the mainstay almost to the 1960s, 70s, and has had different iterations. I think the first version had 420 questions, 421 questions, then the abridged version had 208 questions, and the very first question, if I remember correctly, is um, um, one of them is, why did God make me? Yeah. Right. right? 
So, okay. Now, why did it fall out of use? It fell out of use because what you have heard me say before is that there are three transcendentals. Right. Truth, beauty, and goodness. The catechism works very well in a cultural context where beauty and goodness are the fabric within which we live. What do I mean? If people are going to church, if people have a devotional life, if people recognize the calendar of the church in their own homes, when they know of the feasts and the prayers and the rituals and the traditions, right? When they live a, a life that's basically rooted in virtue, trying to do service, then the real emphasis is the academic, the intellectual. But what happens if you don't have the liturgical life, you don't have going to mass every Sunday, you don't have a knowledge of the traditions, you're not seeking a life of virtue, is the intellectual path the only one we have to walk? And the answer is no. Yeah. So it's one of them. So it has served a phenomenal purpose, and I'm speaking now as the chair of the subcommittee on the catechism, right, which is the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, the St. John Paul II, it is an essential tool, but in our secular missionary world, it, it can't be the only tool, but it is an essential piece. The intellectual presentation of the faith is absolutely essential. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it, 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 was, just, it was just a huge part of life yeah. for Catholics for generations and generations and generations. And the new one should be now. So... Yeah, I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and one one last thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, so these these men that I'm going to mention, they weren't saints, but we are talking about oh, the history. Oh gosh, of, no. We, we're talking about <laughs> the history of the church in America, and it was significant. We had Al Smith win a major party nomination for president in 1928 or 29, and we had JFK win the White House in 1960. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts in maybe one or two minutes on, on that, Excellency? Oh, you see, now my view on this is very peculiar. Uh, let's go back in history. We talked about the early church being so evangelically dynamic and had explosive growth. After Constantine recognized Christianity, a lot of that growth began to diminish because many people got involved in the institutional tussles with politics and with, and with the centers of influence and power that come with recognition. And while they were tremendous milestones that Al Smith was nominated and JFK was our first Catholic president, the little I know of, J, of, of JFK's life, it was not a stellar moral life. No. And the fact that, therefore, Catholics made it did not necessarily help the church to continue to grow. One could argue that the actually opposite began to happen, that we became much more set and involved in that larger social, political, cultural landscape that, if you're not careful, can get the best of you. So in that sense, I am not in the majority opinion. I think I'm very happy that it happened, but in some way, shape, or form, when you are persecuted, 
is when you are called to greatness. Right. Yeah. And maybe fortunately we're being persecuted again, so maybe now this is the moment of renewed greatness. Yeah. <laughs> No, I see what you're saying, especially with JFK. I mean, one of the things that helped him win the presidency was the fact that he had distanced himself from Rome, at least, you know, right. he said as, as it would regard his public uh, policy. Uh, on another day, I'd like to ask you about Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton. I mean, both of them contributed oh, very important things to Catholicism, but they went a little, little off the rails uh, as they got older, I would say. Um, well, but, I would say this, Dor mm -hmm. Dorothy Day's life is, is just, it's quite extraordinary. And to think it happened a lot in Staten Island is amazing, hmm. right? Um, yeah, we will talk about them and some other modern people as well. Yeah, right? yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, let's take one more break and, uh, and take questions when we come back. We need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Welcome back everybody to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Uh, it's time. It's a time where we we take questions, Excellency, and mm -hmm. we got this one came in from Jackie in New Canaan. Her question: She asks, the practice of meditation for physical and mental well-being is encouraged by health experts in so many outlets, especially during this time of pandemic in handling stress. What are your thoughts on meditation? Is it efficacious with connecting the mind and body and increasing awareness in the moment? Or is it simply an empty exercise that is replacing prayer in the modern world? Well, Jackie, the last part of your question is certainly a pitfall we must need, we must avoid at all cost. That the exercise of meditation as a substitute for the prayer we offer in worship to God, because one can never replace the other. But having said that, your question is very intuitive because in a world, as we've spoken before, that there is a great division between the spirit and the body, the center of consciousness and the body, almost as if the body is just a useless receptacle of who I really am. The, 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 four, the ways where we can traditionally meditate that allows us to calm ourselves reestablishes what it is a fundamental unity between our spirit and our body because our body is as much us and therefore if it any exercise in meditation allows us to be calm and to be focused in the present moment all of that is the entree then to prayer it allows us then to offer ourselves to the lord if that could be prayers, that could be a prayer without words, that could be an offering before the Lord in adoration. What I find in my prayer life that's very difficult, and I've admitted it before, is calming my spirit to be able to pray in an undistracted way. 
because we bring our worries and our agenda and our work wherever we go, even in prayer. So I think it's not a question of either or, it's a question of first and second. It's setting the foundation for what then could be the proper disposition to be able to pray and to be able then to offer oneself, you calm oneself to offer oneself to God. So I think it's tremendous that people learn how to do that because stress has becoming a corrosive element in our lives since the pandemic. People are under more stress than they actually realize. But having said that, uh, the solution, if I may, or the, the antidote for the corrosive uh, um, presence of stress and worry and anxiety is God's love. It's God's healing presence. So meditation can easily lead to that prayer experience. It's an excellent question. Yeah. And uh, keep the questions coming. If you're listening and you have a question, please send them in to questions at veritascatholic.com. You can also actually post them uh, as a comment to any one of the shows that are uh, put up on Facebook um, through the diocese or through the bishop's uh, page or through Veritas's page. So, um, Excellency, thanks for walking us through uh, the history of the church in America today. Uh, fascinating, fascinating topic. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. And, uh, and thanks to our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum. The Knights of Columbus Museum has been helping Let Me Be Frank bring solid Catholic content to you each week. So please check out kofcmuseum.org for more good content for your family. You can find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Veritas is there too. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Having celebrated this uh, weekend of independence, we lift up to you, O Lord, ourselves, our communities and families, our nation. Bring it healing bring it safety and protection. Help us to realize the dream of our founders, that we may be a country of equality, of justice, of prosperity, and of peace. And may we be inspired by the holy women and men who have gone before us, so that one day others will look to us and number us among the saints in your presence. And may you bless us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Thank Excellency. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. All the best. Okay. Talk to you again next week. Okay.